In your daily Bible reading, generally speaking, you will read some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. Sometimes people might say, well, Brother Lawrence, what is the purpose of reading the Old Testament since that was mainly about Israel and their history, and we're living in the New Testament days, and we are a New Testament church? Uh, there are several reasons for that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And when he said that, he had the Old Testament under consideration as the New Testament was still being uh, you know, written and it hadn't been quite completed. So we had all the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation under consideration at 66 books. We find in Romans 15.4 where Paul says the written, things written aforetime. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Things written aforetime were written for our learning. Well, we can't learn anything from the Old Testament Scriptures if we're not reading it. <laughs> we have to read it and we have to study it. And th you say, well, times are different, Brother Lawrence. We, we're living <laughs> in, in times um, totally different in times. But again, that's correct. But there's some things that never change. God never changes. Sin never changes. Human nature never changes. How people respond, how people react, how they, you know, what they do in times of crisis, etc., remains the same. So they're written for our learning that we through comfort and patience of the scriptures or patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The word patience and comfort, comfort means endurance and encouragement. He says the things written aforetime can give you encouragement. Things written aforetime can give you endurance slash perseverance. So it's important. The expression, it is written, is found in 61 verses in the New Testament. That expression is found more times than that, but it's found in 61 verses in the New Testament. It is written. In other words, the writer is telling you something in the New Testament over here that relates to something that was written in the Old Testament over here. And then there's another expression which says, for the Scripture saith. When you read the expression, for the Scripture saith, that means it's something in the Old Testament the writer in the New Testament has under consideration. So it is a blend. And we're not under the ceremonial law of worship as they were in the Old Testament. And we have a pattern, a blueprint for New Testament worship, what the New Testament church should be in the New Testament over here. But the entire Bible is beneficial. The entire Bible is profitable. Now this past week, our daily Bible reading has taken us through the book of 2 Chronicles. And you might think, well, Brother Lawrence, uh, you're not going to speak from, from Chronicles, are you? Uh, Lord willing, I am. <laughs> so don't get discouraged right off the bat. But I know when you start reading First Chronicles, especially the beginning, it's a lot of genealogy and things of that nature. Uh, a lot of things that you have to just kind of keep working your way through, but it soon opens up. And several days ago, I was reading the 20th chapter of Second Chronicles. And then I continued reading in the daily Bible reading after that, but... 2 Chronicles 20 stayed on my mind. 2 Chronicles 20 kept bearing on my mind since the day that I read it several days ago. So I want to focus primarily on 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, this is going to have to do with a king with the name of Jehoshaphat. The name Jehoshaphat means God is judge. God will plead my cause. I think you'll see how what his name means fits right into some of the things about him. He comes to our attention, first of all, in the 17th chapter of 2 Chronicles. We find that Jehoshaphat was the son of a man, of a king by the name of Asa. Asa was a good king. But as in all men, including Jehoshaphat, 
There were some things that they did that was not pleasing to the Lord, but overall, Asa was a good king. And Jehoshaphat had the benefit, and we might see this a little later, had the benefit of having a godly father, having a, a good father that was a good king, that left a good record, that was a good example. How important that is that parents remember that they can be a good example for their children, or they can be a bad example. And uh, children who are blessed to have fathers, it's been a good example. I, I can't tell you what a blessing it is for them as they try to, you know, live their own life, as they grow up and leave home, etc. I'll still think of many things my father told me, instructed me in, that I found to be so valuable in life. The example he set, and my mother, that they set for me. Uh, the dedication and commitment and faithfulness to each other as, as husband and wife their faithfulness, commitment to the Lord in his church. Uh, the church meant everything to them. Uh, they put the Lord first in their life in word and example. And so uh, I stand before you as a highly, highly blessed individual this morning. And it's, it's helped me tremendously. Jehoshaphat had a father like that, King Asa. Jehoshaphat, the first thing it said about him is that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways, in the early ways of his father David. David was not Jehoshaphat's biological father, but he was his father in the standpoint that David was the king of Israel that set the standard. He was not the first king, of course. The first king was Saul of Kish. He was the people's choice, and he almost destroyed the nation. But a man come along with the name of David, that was a man after God's own heart, and God would take him from watching sheep on the hillsides of Bethlehem, and elevate him and bring him over time to be the king of Israel. And how he reigned, his leadership as king of Israel set the standard for all other kings. So this is a very important phrase right here. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways, in the early ways, early days, in the ways of the early days of his father David, in particular in the early days. So it gives us a because here. And that word because is an important word. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, I think everything happens for a reason. I say in reply to that, there's a reason why everything happens. All right? That's a better way to put it as far as I'm concerned. There's a reason why things happen. Not that things happen for a reason, but there's a reason why things happen. And the reason why things happen can be traced right back to the individual, you see. In the book of Daniel, we find where uh, when Daniel was delivered out of the den of lions, it says Daniel was delivered out of the den of lions because he believed in the Lord his God. There's your because right there. He believed in the Lord his God, and therefore he was delivered out of the den of lions. We find the Lord is with Jehoshaphat because, why? He walked in the ways, the early days of his father, David. Again, David was not his biological father. There are several generations between David and the time we get over here to Jehoshaphat. And as we look at the kings uh, listed in the Bible, in Israel's history, we find that the kings of Judah were a mixture of good and bad, where all the kings up here of Israel were bad. The kingdom was divided in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, you had Samaria, was the capital of the northern kingdom, and down in the southern, which, which uh, consisted of ten tribes, 
And then there were two tribes down here in Judah, and Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. And uh, we, of course, Judah, is, I won't try to get into that this morning, just kind of put the picture before you. We see that Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And as you read in Second Chronicles chapter 17, you'll find some wonderful things that Jehoshaphat did. We find one of the most important things is, is he had the word of God read by the Levites to the people for them to be instructed in the word of God. And in the end it says, and God gave rest unto Jehoshaphat and put the fear of the Lord in all the kingdoms that was round about Jehoshaphat. See, where Israel was located, there were kingdoms all around it with kings who were anti-Israel, hadn't changed, anti-Israel, but God was a protective, uh, had a protective border, you might say, around them, and he gave them rest, and they, because he put the fear of the Lord in their hearts that they wouldn't touch Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat, whether he realized it or not during this period of time, had the protective hand of God about him. But we'll come to the 18th chapter. We find where Jehoshaphat made a serious mistake. He made a very foolish decision. Jehoshaphat made affinity with Ahab, the king of Israel. Now, if you know anything about Ahab's life, you know that he was one of the most wicked men that Israel ever had in their history. You go back and read the last part of 1 Kings chapter 16, just before Elijah comes on the scene. And you'll find where um, Ahab was the son of Omni, who was a wicked man. And so here we have a contrast. You know, we have Omni and Ahab over here. Ahab has a wicked example. We have Jehoshaphat over here and his father is Asa, and he's got an outstanding, wonderful example. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than any king that ever reigned before him. He married a woman the name of Jezebel. Whether you know much about Jezebel or not, you know that name is not a positive name, right? You wouldn't want to name your daughter Jezebel, I can assure you. So we have Ahab and Jezebel. And if they were living today, there'd be a reality show on them on TV. Uh, we find a feature film, first of all, coming out of Hollywood. Then we'd have a mini-series uh, of them, a reality show. And unfortunately, it would probably be very popular. Very popular. So anyhow, we have Ahab and Jezebel over here. And you're going to find where chapter 18, verse 1, Second Chronicles, important verse, it says that Jehoshaphat made affinity with the king of Israel, Ahab. Now the word affinity is an important word. It literally means a contract in which one man would give his daughter in exchange for the son of another family. That's what it means. It's mentioned three times in the Bible. That's what it has reference to. If you look over here in the ninth chapter of Ezra, for example, you will find where Ezra prays to the Lord, confesses his sins, the sins of the people, just during the time of the Babylonian captivity. We find where God has delivered them out of the hand of, the, of Babylon, out of captivity over here. But the Bible tells us in that ninth chapter that the priests and officers and different ones were still intermingling with the idolatrous nations of that land. Now, when God blessed Israel to go into the land of Canaan, he gave them clear, explicit instructions that they were not to intermingle, they were not to inter interact, they were not to give their sons for the 
for their, their daughters and their daughters for their sons. They were to cut down the altars. They would destroy their images, destroy their pictures. They have nothing to do with them whatsoever. It would be a clean break, a clean separation. The land of Canaan would be the land for the Israelites to dwell in. It would be their land and their land of identity. When Israel did that, they were blessed. And when they did not, they were cursed. There's some of you because it's right there. So we find Jehoshaphat made affinity with the king of Israel in the northern kingdom. That word affinity means to give one's daughter in exchange, in other words, uh, to give one's daughter away. Like when we have a marriage here, I usually ask, who giveth this woman in marriage? And the father of the bride says, her mother and I do. All right? That's exactly what we're talking about here. If you read some other portions of the Bible, you will find where Jehoshaphat gave his son unto the daughter of King Ahab, or King Ahab gave his daughter to be the wife of Jehoshaphat's son. There's the affinity we're talking about right here. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, you find Solomon did that. Solomon made an affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and received his daughter. It's a marriage contract, it's what we're talking about here. And the very fact that Jehoshaphat gave his son, or received Ahab's daughter to be the wife of his son, was going to cause tremendous problems for, for years and years and years to come. We're reading the book of 2 Corinthians 6, 14, where the apostle Paul said that, we, that the um, believers should not, there should not be a bond between believers and unbelievers. Why is that? Well, I think that should be obvious to us. I hope that it is. The believer's mindset's one thing. The unbeliever's mindset's quite another. That, in fact, it reads like this. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, what's a yoke? Uh, you know, you have a double yoke. You have a yoke and you have a double yoke. And a double yoke puts two oxen together, right? So the Bible in the Old Testament said that you should not hook up an ox with a, a, with a mule or an ass. Wonder why? <laughs> They're two different animals. They're not in harmony. Uh, they're not going to behave the same. Now you've got them connected together. You're, you're just a recipe for disaster. So when you have a believer hooked up with an unbeliever, it's a recipe for disaster. So a believer has to be very careful. Just anybody and everybody should not be available out here. All right? Be not unequally yoked. See, it's an, it's an unequal yoke. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Jehoshaphat is going to unequally yoke himself with an unbeliever in Ahab. Ahab's not a believer. He might be the king of the northern uh, part of Israel up here in the north, the northern kingdom, but he's not a believer. He's a very wicked man, a very evil man. And yet we've had Jehoshaphat doing something very foolish. That's a compromise that he made here. The Lord's people, Satan's always trying to get God's people to compromise. Just compromise. Well, uh, this won't hurt anything, that won't hurt anything. Well, you know, they do a lot of good over here, one thing or another. It's a compromise. You follow the Word of God. You don't compromise. When you compromise, you get in trouble. This compromise led to another compromise. The second compromise I want to talk to you about before we get into chapter 20 is found in chapter 18. And you'll find that Ahab, now they got this, they got this connection. Ahab's daughter is married to Jehoshaphat's son. Now you got family involved, you see. So he comes to Jehoshaphat and he says, I want to know if you'll go with me in the battle against Ramoth Gilead, against the Syrians. Well, Jehoshaphat very foolishly says, 
Sure, I'll go with you. Says, what is mine is yours, yours is mine, my horse is my chariot, your horse is your chariot, etc., etc. But he does one wise thing. You see, he makes a foolish decision, he does one wise thing. He does ask Ahab, is there not a man of God that we might inquire concerning the matter, a prophet? Well, then Ahab says, yes, there is. He said, he never says anything good about me. <laughs> That's because he had nothing good to say about him. There's nothing good about him you could say. That's what it boils down to. He never says anything good about me. But nevertheless, we'll go get him. And the messenger goes to the prophet and he tells him, he says, please say something good to the king this time because the other prophets already told him he needs to go into battle. Please say something good. <laughs> so when he comes there, he does, but by reading the Bible, you can, say, you can see he says it sarcastically. Because the king says, didn't I not tell you he never says anything good about me? And then he told him the truth. He said, if you go into battle against this, you're going to be scattered. Everybody's going to go a different way. You're going to be scattered. In other words, you're going to lose. It's going to be disastrous if you do that. Didn't listen to him. So they go into battle. And then you're going to find where Ahab tells Jehoshaphat. And things like this I find a little hard to understand. You know, I have my don't understand list. I mention every now and then. It's not on paper. It's in my head. And it grows and grows and grows. And one of these days uh, when I'm uh, ready to step off the scene of life, maybe I'll have it printed. And that way I'll be safe. Something I just don't understand. And Karen says, you got to realize one of these days that everybody doesn't think like you think. Well, I don't want them to think like I think unless I'm thinking biblically. But if I'm thinking biblically, I want you to think like I think. That's what I don't understand. Anyway, got to be careful not to get into that. So anyway, I got my don't understand list. Here's one thing my don't understand list. Of all the good things you say about Jehoshaphat, and there are many, and he'll go down on record as being a good man, a good king, who did many wonderful and good things. He done a foolish thing, first of all, for making affinity here with King Ahab and receiving King Ahab's daughter to be the wife of his son. But then he goes into battle with him. And we find where Ahab says, here's what we're going to do, Jehoshaphat. Says, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to put on, you know, the armor and everything for battle, but says, you just wear your robes, your king robes. Well, on the other side, the enemy... They get together and say, listen, we, the main one we want is the king of Israel. That's the one we want right there. He said, don't worry about the rest of them. We get the king, we'll win the battle. That's who we want. So Ahab, he, he's like a fox, you see. He slides a fox. He said, I'll just disguise myself. I, I'll be like one of the warriors. I'll have on my armor one thing and another. And he says, you just wear your robes, Jehoshaphat. So that's what they did. So the battle gets started and we find the enemy soldiers, they're looking for somebody in robes. That's what the kings wore. They wore the kingly robes. They see Jehoshaphat. And they come at Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat cries out to the Lord. I tell you, this is one of them Peter, uh, uh, prayers like Peter prayed. <laughs> Fast and to the point. <laughs> he ain't got time to go back before the foundation of the world here. It's fast and to the point. He says, help me, Lord. And the Bible says, the Lord helped Jehoshaphat, and he turned them away from him. 
he helped Jehoshaphat and turned him away from him. How did he do that? Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turned it whichsoever desireth as the rivers of water. An invisible force intervened. A force could not be seen by the eyes of men. An invisible force intervened there into the hearts of those enemy soldiers to where somehow though they recognized, yes, this man's got on kingly roads, but this is not Ahab. And they turned away from him. Had they not turned away from him, Jehoshaphat no doubt would have been slain. He's not supposed to be on that battlefield. He's out of the will of God. But God in his mercy and God in his grace intervenes providentially and delivers him. Something Jehoshaphat in one sense did not deserve. So now Ahab has got all the armor on. He's fully protected, you would think. But here's that verse where it says, A man drew a bow at a venture, or an arrow at a venture. means randomly. Now normally they'd be shooting at targets, whatever. He just pulls an arrow and shoots it randomly at a venture. There's only one place that that arrow can find that can hurt Ahab, and it's the very place he's not protected, in the center of his back back here, the arrow hits right in there and finds its mark. Do you see the protective hand of God around Jehoshaphat, but no protective hand around Ahab? Ahab has tried to figure out how Jehoshaphat will take the arrow meant for him, but God sees to it, it doesn't happen. God sees to it that he gets the arrow, even though he's fully protected. There's just a small spot if you've ever seen this, just a small spot that's exposed in the back. That arrow had to find a bullseye, literally a bullseye, and it was shot at random. Not even by an expert, expert, uh, expert marksman. Just a soldier shot a bow adventure, uh, arrow adventure rather. Found his mark. He wasn't even aiming at him, in other words. But God aimed it at him. God providentially sent him, just like he did the stone that came out of the sling of David. They found the head and the forehead of the giant Goliath. Jehoshaphat's life is spared. Look at the last verse of the 18th chapter and the first verse of the 19th chapter. You'll find when Ahab is hit with the arrow, he doesn't die immediately. But he's bleeding greatly. And he tells one of his men, he says, Take me out of the host, for I'm hit. And he takes him out of the host. And he returns to Jerusalem, excuse me, to Samaria, and he dies. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 19.1 that Jehoshaphat returned to Jerusalem in peace. Now you got two kings in the battle. One's in his robes, one's in his armor. God protects one, doesn't protect the other. God delivers one, doesn't deliver the other. The man who is fortified as much as humanly possible is slain by an arrow shot at a venture. Jehoshaphat in his kingly robes, easy target. I mean, that's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you got a great host out here, but he's the only one that's got robes on. Everybody's got warrior's armor on. But God delivers him and protects him. Oh, for the protective hand of God in our lives. And the Bible says, the Lord helped him. Just a little simple statement. The Lord helped him. When I read Psalms 121, I see this playing out in the life of Jehoshaphat. That psalm has uh, five or six verses in it. And it starts off like this. 
David says, I look unto the hills which cometh my help. I look unto the Lord which made heaven and earth. He says, the Lord helps those that call upon him, and the Lord will not slumber. And the Lord will not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is, he will suffer not their foot to be moved. He is their shade on the right hand. The word shade means defense. God was Jehoshaphat's defense. He had no defense outside of God. For for God, he had been slain right there on the spot on the battlefield in a battle he should have never been in to begin with because he made affinity, he compromised with the king of Israel. God delivers him. He goes back in peace. He's delivered. Ahab is not. And then God sends a prophet to him, though, and says unto Jehoshaphat, Why do you help the ungodly and those that do not love the Lord? Why'd you do that? He says Ahab's ungodly. He doesn't love the Lord. You went out there to help him. Why'd you do that? It says, For the wrath of the Lord shall be upon thee. That wasn't good news. That wasn't good news at all. So keep that in mind. But he goes on to say, but there's good to be found in thee. <laughs> he didn't overlook the good that was found in Joseph. There's good to be found in thee. Thou hast broken down the altars. You continue the way of thy father Asa. Says uh, the things he started that were good, you have maintained and you have continued them along the way. So the Lord sees this. And it overrides. It overrides that, you see. Now, here's another example that the very, you know, best of men, a minute best. Here's a really good man, done a very foolish thing. He was wise enough to ask for godly counsel, but they didn't heed to it. And then God just simply intervened. He made a very foolish decision. I read of other great men in the Bible who done likewise. In the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, you read about a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham, after being called out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees and given promises by God, a famine comes in the land, and Abraham takes his wife Sarah, and they go down to the land of Egypt. Had it not been for God's overruling providence, his wife Sarah would have been defiled down there in that land. But God overruled. He put the fear of God <laughs> in the, the ruler down there, let him know exactly uh, who Abraham and Sarah were. Now, he rebuked Abraham. That's bad. Rebuke from the godly is good. Rebuke from the ungodly is, is bad. He's rebuked with the ungodly. And God brings Abraham and Sarah back out of the land of Egypt, back to where they belong to begin with. Very foolish decision. David made a foolish decision one time. You look in 1 Samuel chapter 27, and you'll find where it says, And David said in his heart, now, here's the problem he made right there because Solomon, his son, will write later in Proverbs, he that trusts his heart is a fool. Now, for a long period of time, David had been delivered time and time again from Saul of Kish. When it looked like Saul had him, had him cornered, when it looked like he had him right there in his grasp, God would providentially deliver him out of it. And then... A few days later, same thing would happen again. It looked like Saul had him right there in his sight, so to speak. But God would intervene. One time, Saul had him surrounded. He was on this mountain, this hill. had him surrounded, about ready to close in. And a messenger came and said to Saul, says, the Philistines are invading you back over here. Wonder why. 
And Saul has to leave the scene to go over here to take care of this business and David escapes. So why wouldn't David say this? He's a man of weakness like everybody else. He wasn't a superman. But he said in his heart, that's the problem, he said in his heart, surely the day will come when Saul shall kill me. It'd be better for me to flee into the land where are the Philistines, of all the people that David would go to, he'd go to the, his enemy from years past, the Philistines. But miraculously, they received him. What David did not know, a short time later, a battle was being uh, formed, you might say, between the Philistines and the Israelites. And David now would be on the side of the Philistines having to go into battle against his own people. But God intervened again. Proverbs 21.1, one more time. The heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. And I believe God put it into the minds of the lords of the Philistines to talk to the king and said, he can't go with us into battle. This is the same one that they sang the song of, that Saul slayed his thousands, but uh, David has slain his ten thousand. He cannot go with us into the battle. He'll turn on us. The king wanted David to go into battle. He, he had confidence in David. But he comes to David and tells David, you cannot go with me into the battle. And David protests. He said, no, you just cannot. He will not please the lords of the Philistines. So David turned and went back to a place called Ziklag. God kept him out of a battle against his own people because he made a foolish decision when he trusted in his heart. Trusted in his heart. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 now. This chapter opens up with the enemy of Jehoshaphat approaching to try to destroy him. You have the Amorites and the Moabites and the mountain of Seir, which involved the Edomites. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, you will find when Israel was in the wilderness on the way to Canaan's land, God told them that they were not to meddle with the Moabites and they were not to meddle with the Ammonites. He said, because I've given the land they have to the offspring of Lot. And you're not to distress or meddle with the, those of the, uh, of the mountain of Seir. I've given that land unto the descendants of Esau. You're not to meddle or distress with them. You leave them alone. So they did. But now, all three of them had received favor of God to be left alone by Israel, which Israel could have destroyed them under the hand of God. They now form a plan to come into the land to capture Jehoshaphat and the people of God down in Judah. A messenger comes, his intelligence, I suppose, of the day, and tells Jehoshaphat what the situation is. Jehoshaphat, I think, is surprised to find out, first of all, the enemy is approaching. Up to this time, he'd had the protective hand of God concerning all the kingdoms round about him. God had put the fear of God in their hearts. They wouldn't bother Jehoshaphat. But remember, Jehoshaphat made affinity with the king of Israel, right? And the prophet said, And wrath of the hand of God shall be upon thee. So the enemy's already invaded the land. They've already crossed the border. Before he even finds out anything about it. He didn't, they didn't see him coming at a great distance outside the border. They've already crossed the border. They're in the land now of Judah. So let's see what Jehoshaphat did. In verse 3, chapter 20, 2 Chronicles. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. That's the first thing he did. That was the most important thing for him to do. He didn't do it second, third, or last. He did it first. 
He didn't say anything about him mobilizing his army. He didn't say anything about him numbering everybody and organizing them. The very first thing he did was set himself to seek the Lord. When I read this chapter, I thought, how? How applicable it is in my life personally. How applicable it is in the life of God's people today. How applicable it is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing we need to do, no matter what we're facing in life, is to set ourselves to seek the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17, Solomon says, and this is the Lord speaking. He says, I love them that love me. (laughs) Do you love the Lord? (laughs) If you do, the Lord says, I love you. Now, to begin with, initially, uh, the Lord loves you first, okay? We love him because he first loved us, we're told in the New Testament. But now, experientially, in time, he says, I love them that love me. I love them that show their love for me. In other words, just like the Lord loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why? Because they showed him such great kindness and compassion and great hospitality, didn't he? they not? Oh, how the Lord Jesus Christ loved that family. Uh, they were so good and kind to him. Not many people offered a, a, a place to sit down and eat in their home uh, outside of these three. There was just a very few that did such a thing as that. I love them that love me, and they that seek me early, what, shall find me. I believe that's early in the day. I believe that's early in life. To the young folks here, I encourage you, I exhort you, uh, strongly this morning. Don't wait till you're 30 and 40 and 50 and say, well, I guess I've uh, you know, seen enough of this old world. I think I'll start seeking the Lord now. No, I want you to start seeking the Lord right now, this day, no matter what your age is, whether you're 5 or 15 or whatever it is, you seek Him early in life. That's why Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote that as well. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Serve Him while you've got the greatest amount of energy you're ever going to have. I can tell you, your energy will decline over time, I'm told. Well, I'll wait to see that, if that's really the truth or not, I guess. But anyway, uh, from what I see and observe out here, I think it's probably the truth. You serve him when you give him the best you got, the best of your mind, the best of your life, the best of your energy, the best of everything. I love them that love me, and they that seek me early shall find me. I want to find him, don't you? <laughs> I want to find him. So we find here that the very first thing Joseph did, first of all, he feared. Now, uh, it would have done the Israelites a lot of good if they'd have had a copy of the book of Deuteronomy under their arm every day they lived and every opportunity they had just open it up and read a little something. Because right now I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 20, the opening verse of chapter 20. The Lord said unto Israel, when you go to battle against a great multitude. You know why I said that? And why it says right here there's a great multitude to come out against them? Because every single time Israel in the battle, they were always in the minority. You read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll find where the Lord said unto Israel, I didn't choose you because you were greater in number, I chose you because you were the fewest in number. So they went after battle, as a general rule, there were more of the enemy than it was with them. He said, when you go out into battle against the multitude and you see the horses and the chariots and a great multitude of people, fear not. Fear not. He said, because I'm going to be with you and I delivered you out of the land of Egypt. He reminds them about that deliverance, you see. And he says, the priest shall say to the people when you go out to battle, do not fear, neither be frightened or afraid. 
Because the Lord God is with you to go with you to fight your battles for you. He says, remember this. So you go out and you see the horses and the chariots and, the, you know, the soldiers and everything. And they, they, they pose a tremendous threat and, and, uh, and everything. And you see all that. And the first thing that's going to happen to you, if you're not careful, you're going to be frightened inside. And that would be a natural reaction. But even though they were always the minority, in one sense they were always the majority, because God, you plus God, makes you the majority. Okay? So how did the people respond? Well, Jehoshaphat feared, set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now this is a national thing we're talking about here. Oh, how wonderful it would be today if America would fast as a nation. You know, you, fasting involves a lot of things. Most times people think about fasting involving food or drink or something like that. But it can be anything. And the one thing America needs to fast in is fast from sin. That's what we need to do. There needs to be a fast concerning sin. Separate yourself from sin. <laughs> I think things would get better, don't you? I just got a feeling that things would get better if we would just start obeying the Ten Commandments. <laughs> What other things would be if we just started reading and keeping the Ten Commandments? They won't even be allowed to be read today in schools and courthouses and places like that anymore. You know why? Because they don't want people to see it. It's condemning. But anyway, uh, they claimed to fast through that all Judah. And then Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. The same thing that Joseph had did. They're seeking to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This was a national thing. All the cities, of, the people poured out. They came down to Jerusalem. And they go to the house of God. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Notice where he's at. He's in the house of the Lord. It couldn't be a better place for him to be, right? He's in the house of the Lord. He's in the court of God. And said, O Lord God of our fathers. <laughs> Think about that initial expression. O Lord God of our fathers. That takes him back quite a ways. When he said, O Lord God of our fathers, now we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph had knew their history. He knew how God had been the God of the fathers, going all the way back to the original person in Abraham. How he blessed Abraham, how he delivered Abraham, how he took care of Isaac, how he took care of Jacob, how he took care of Joseph down there in the land of Egypt, how he took care of Moses, a little baby. <laughs> you know, it didn't raise him up to be a great deliverer for Israel. How he blessed uh, his father Moses and his father uh, Joshua. How he blessed the fathers, the God of our fathers. <laughs> Moses, Joshua, Gideon. The list goes on and on and on. That's how he starts his prayer out. I love this prayer. O oh Lord God of our fathers, art not thou the God in heaven? <laughs> yes, he, he's not praying to some statue. He's not praying to some earthly image. He's praying to God in glory. Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord speaks. He says, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Get the picture, if you will. There's a throne, there's a footstool. Where's God? He's on the throne. The earth down here is his footstool. He said, oh, Lord God of my fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Yes, you are. 
and rulest not thou over the kingdoms of the heathen? Yes, you do. And in thine hand is there not power and might? Yes, there is. So that none is able to withstand thee. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> I love these questions where the answer is so easy. <laughs> you know, uh, any question is easy if you know the answer, right? You know, when you watch Jeopardy and you get one, you know why you got it? Because you knew the answer. The question is easy if you know the answer. <laughs> if you don't know it, it's hard. Well, thank God I know the answer to these questions right here. <laughs> None can stay his hand. He's got power in one hand and might in the other. And the man praying has no power, has no might, but he's praying to God that's got power in one hand and might in the other hand. He rules over all the kingdoms and kingdoms of this earth, even though the great wicked, God is still ruling over top of them. He's in heaven. These questions have implied answers. Surely, if you miss the answers of these, shame on you. <laughs> uh, you shouldn't miss these. The answer is implied. Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Yes, you are. And they dwelt therein and built their sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword and judgment of pestilence of famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house. And crying in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. He sets the stage in this prayer, doesn't he? And then he tells about the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, how they're coming. And then verse 12, he said, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Remember, his name means God is judge. Will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. We have no might against this company. I feel myself in that position oftentimes, but I tell you, I know one who's got power in one hand and might in the other. And God becomes my power, and God becomes my might, and God becomes my courage. And when I don't know what to do, and I'm confused, God becomes my light, my understanding, and uh, he uh, is the one that can direct my steps in the right path, right? See, when you call upon God like that, everything you're lacking in, he supplies. He becomes that. And that's what Jehoshaphat is depending upon here. Our eyes are upon thee. Where, where else should they be except on the Lord? Go back to Psalms 121. I lift up my eyes unto the hills of which, heaven, of which the Lord the Lord who made the heaven and also the earth. Uh, numerous times in Psalms, speak, David speaks about lifting up his eyes up into heaven to the God of glory. And then all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Uh, we don't find them all separated, do we? We find them all together. Here are the men, here's the women, here's the husbands, here's the fathers, here's the children, here's the servants. And they're all together there in the same place with the same mind and the same uh, words coming from their heart. They're looking to the Lord for help and for deliverance. We find the Lord sends an answer. There's the prayer, here's, here's the answer. It says, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed, but reason this great multitude. There's that great multitude again. For the battle is not yours, but God's. What an answer it came to them. Be not afraid nor dismayed. You know that expression, be not afraid nor dismayed, uh, we find in the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy where Moses said that to Israel. In the first chapter of Joshua, we find where Moses said it to Joshua. Then a little bit later on, we find where the Lord said it to Joshua. Then we find where Joshua said it to the, to the Israelites. 
Then I find where David said it to, to Solomon and them. It's just repeated over and over and over again. Be not afraid nor dismayed. Wonder why this, that many times, wonder why that exact expression. Be not afraid nor dismayed. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. He said, now here's the plan. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Zip, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeriel. He says, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Have you ever heard the expression before getting here, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord? You remember that from Exodus 14, right? When Israel is before the Red Sea, and they don't know how they're going to get across the Red Sea, and they hear the army of the Egyptians coming uh, fast behind them, and now, as they say, they're between a rock and a hard place, right? So God says, Moses, you just tell them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And they did, and Moses reached forth his rod over the sea, and the sea parted, and the entire nation of Israel crossed safely, delivered to the other side. All the enemy was totally and completely destroyed in the Red Sea. We have another stand still and see the salvation of the Lord right here before us. And Jehoshaphat bowed and noticed the response. The prayer, the answer, the response... And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're worshiping the Lord. And for it to be acceptable, I believe that we have to be bowed down and our face to the ground and show great humility to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then the Levites and the children of the Kohites and the children of the, uh, them, they stood up to praise the Lord of Israel with a loud voice on high. Now, I'm going to summarize that here this morning with these final thoughts. You'll read, you'll read here when Jehoshaphat sent out the army. The next day, just like God told him, he sent out singers who were praising God before the battle. You read a little bit further on, you'll find where they're continuing to sing during the battle. And you know how the battle went? God caused great confusion to where every single Amorite and Moabite and Edomite, they all turned on each other and slew each other. For some reason. Why? Because God caused them to do it. And the Israelites didn't have to do anything but watch. They slew each other. And they sung during the battle, sung praise during the battle. And when the battle was over, they had the spoil to collect. It took them three days to get all the spoil. <laughs> three days of gathering the spoil together. And then they all went into the temple where they again, the singers there, praised God. Now notice, they praised him before the battle. They praised him during the battle. And they praised him after the battle. Now, if we're going to do that, you know the only way you can do that? You have to make a practice of praising God every day. If you praise God when you get up in the morning, uh, you'll praise him before the battle. And somewhere during the day, there's going to be a battle. And you praise him during the battle. And when God delivers you out of the battle, you praise him after the battle. Does that make sense? I think it does. <laughs> so if you're going to be sure to praise him before, during, and after, you just got to make a habit of praising him. That shouldn't be too hard to do. How hard is it to say, thank you, Lord? 
That wasn't hard at all. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you for another night's sleep. Thank you for another day. Thank you for the rain last night. Thank you for helping me along life's pathway. Thank you for delivering me from the, the wildness of this world in which I live. And they call the name of that place Baraka, the Valley of Baraka, which means the Valley of Blessing. This may have happened in the Old Testament day, but I believe the parts fit together just like they should in our life today. Aren't you glad about that? I think things can, things can seem to be so overwhelming. It seems like, especially in today's society, Seem like the evil forces of this world are gaining ground daily. But I tell you what, they will never, they will never overthrow the God of glory. And God's people have a Savior in Jesus Christ who made up to the feelings of our infirmities. Okay, we turn to number 19. As we turn to this verse, excuse me, this hymn, we'd like to Encourage anyone with a desire in your heart to follow the Lord and be part of this congregation of baptized believers and join forces with them. We'd like to encourage you to do that as we sing this hymn.